Have you ever found yourself on the road to heartbreak? Has there been a time in your life when you looked at the relationships that mattered the most, maybe it was your spouse, and you realized there was no there there anymore? Maybe there was no great incident, maybe there were no terrible things that happened, it just had sort of begun to fade. The joy and the love that you'd experienced early on was gone, and you found yourself on the road to heartbreak. Or maybe it was in your, in your career, in your job. Maybe you were stuck in what felt like a, a, a no-win situation. You needed the income, you needed the money, and you were afraid if you quit this job, though, and went to find another one, you might not make enough to, to live at the level you've been at, or, or you may just get stuck in another job, and you just feel like you're on the road to, to heartbreak. Or maybe you're like George Bailey. Do you, do you remember George Bailey? He's, the, he's in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, which, by the way, is the best Christmas movie ever made. Don't argue with me on this. <laughs> thank, thank you. I got an amen right here in the front row. I need to do more Christmas movie references. Maybe you're like George Bailey, and you're looking back over your life, and you're wondering, is this it? Did I make any kind of a difference at all? A pastor I read last week wonders out loud, what should we do, she asks, when we're on the road to heartbreak? What should we do? What should we try to say? How, how shall we live? Is there, is there some magic formula? Is there something we can do? I answered her own question out loud when I read her sermon in my office and said, I go to my friends. I, I turn to my friends, my closest friends, the ones that I know will love me and accept me for who I am and will listen to me and maybe even speak speak the truth to me in love as hard as it might be to hear that truth. That's where I go. I go to, I go to my, my friends. I, I'm thinking this morning especially of my friend Deb Lindsay, who I, I met years ago at a conference here at First Community and then got to know so much better after I was hired to, to come here as senior pastor. That was at the end of 2016 when that call came to me and Deb and I set up a, an appointment every Thursday for two months before uh, we moved here to Ohio to talk on the phone about the church and some of my ideas, to hear feedback from her. It was a, it was a marvelous uh, set of conversations because I learned so much about you all. Most of it was nice. <clears throat> and I learned about the church and the culture and I had some ideas and she was more than willing to say, yeah, that might not fly so well here or yeah, that's a great one. So she was the executive minister back then, oversaw everything, finances and the staff and, and a host of other things in her job description. I really enjoyed working with her as her colleague during that first year. In fact, I've told many people, my first year in ministry here up to that point was my best year ever in ministry. You all were so amazingly gracious and kind to, to Julie and me. The way you welcomed us into your hearts, into your family, into your church it was an amazing, incredible year, except at the end. I learned the sad news that, that Deb needed to step away from ministry for a while. I admired her honesty. I deeply appreciated her courage and her willingness to say, I need to take a step back. I need to take a break. I admired her honesty and her courage, but I was very sad to see my colleague go. And then something remarkable happened. She became a great friend to Julie and me. She became the kind of friend and is the kind of friend that I know I can call on the phone and say, I'm going through a tough time. Do you got a minute? And she's got a minute and more. I know that she's the kind of person my wife can talk to about whatever is concerning her life, whatever issue she might be facing. When she needs a friend, she's got Deb Lindsay. 
And I know she'll speak the truth in love. I know she'll be there for us. I'm worried, though. I'm worried about our culture. I'm worried about you all, about all of us, and the ability to find and make and keep friendships alive. Uh, you know, when, I, when I was my, our boys were little, well, like eight and three years old, I loved taking them to, to the community pool, to the neighborhood pool. Inevitably, they would see friends from the neighborhood that they know or friends from school that they know and they'd be able to play and enjoy themselves. And, and in the same way, I'd see people there and strike up a conversation with moms and dads and we'd get to know each other better. Oh, it wasn't necessarily a deep, a deep, super amazing relationship, but just even that ability to see somebody and know them by name and share ideas about parenting or talk about where's a good place to go have a, a meal on, on a weekend. All those kinds of, of simple conversations really add up and create relationships and the possibility for deeper friendships to emerge. I'm worried today because if you go to a public playground or a neighborhood pool, what do you see parents doing? Talking to each other or are they doing this? And there's nothing wrong with this, essentially. It's just a phone. It's just a computer that we carry around in, a, in our pocket. But it seems like every place I go, Julie and I were out for dinner last night. There was a couple sitting across from us. Both of them had their phones out. Phone in one hand, eating their food with the other. I'm worried. I'm especially worried that these kind of wide-eyed friendships where we, where, we, where we give our full selves to each other are almost becoming impossible these days, especially, especially for our teens. Now, I know I might sound like an old white man screaming at young people to get off, our, get off my lawn. That may be how it sounds. I don't mean to sound like that because I've done some research and I've read a number of articles and listened to some stories online about how dangerous it is today to be a teenager. Because of social media, because of the way things are changing in our culture, it's especially dangerous to be a teenage girl today. The rates of depression are on the rise, dramatically on the rise in the last 10 years. The rate of suicidal thoughts are dramatically on the rise in the last 10 years. I'm worried, I'm worried about the ability of our culture to create and make space for friendships, for relationships that matter. David Brooks, the, the brilliant columnist who works for the New York Times and has written on sociology and psychology and a host of other things, wrote an article about a year ago in the Times where he talked about the power of friendship, especially friendship with someone who is completely different from you. He quotes a philosopher named Alexander Nahamas. I might be mispronouncing his name, I apologize. Nahamas says, Nahamas says that when you make friends with somebody who is completely different from you, it's a transformative moment. You become a richer, broader, deeper kind of person you are able to see the world in a new way when you become a friend with somebody who sees everything differently from you. And not only that, he says, your future is changed. Imagine that. Becoming friends with someone who thinks completely different from you. I'm thinking today of my friend Doug. He and I have been best friends for about 40 years. He was my first boss right, right out of college. Uh, he was, the only thing we had in common really was that we both graduated from, from the same little Bible college. He, nine years before me, <clears throat> he was an A student. 
I was not. I'm a, I'm a sports geek. I memorize sports trivia. I, watch, I love following my favorite teams. I like watching all, all teams. I like paying attention to almost every sport there is. I love, and Doug thinks it's silly and a waste of time. Why would grown-up adults spend time worrying about these games? He loves classical music. I love rock and roll. We're different in every way possible. And yet I'll never forget a time two years after I began working for him when I found myself and my family, my extended family, back in San Francisco, stuck between a rock and a hard place. And Doug became the dynamite that could set me free to see things more clearly. In this conversation, he began by saying, I'm your best friend. With the exception of my wife, Julie, no one else to that point in my life had ever said anything so daring, so dramatic, and I'm pretty sure I cried. He said, let's look at this together. And sure enough, I was set free from where I'd been stuck. I'm worried that not enough of us, including myself, have those kind of relationships and friendships that can guide us and strengthen us. A wide-eyed friendship, a wide-open friendship. Look at the story today about these two disciples of Christ. It's Easter afternoon becoming Easter evening. There's wild, strange stories that some women have shared with the disciples about seeing Jesus or seeing a vision of angels who told them that Jesus is alive. They can't believe it, though. They've seen him. He's dead. He was dead, and they know, like we know now, dead is dead. They can't believe the stories. And then they encounter Jesus. The text says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I think that what's happening is they're thinking in the back of their minds, well, he sure looks like Jesus, but it can't be. We know he's crucified and dead. It can't be him. And then Jesus, who we know it is Jesus from the story, Jesus begins to ask them, what, what's happening with you? What were you talking about so intently on the road? And Cleopas, who, whose companion might be his wife, we're not sure, might be his wife. Cleopas says, says to Jesus, he tells him all the things that have happened in Jerusalem, the crucifixion and, and the death and burial and all the rest. And then he, he uses the three saddest words, what might be the most sad words you'll find in the Bible. We had hoped. We had hoped that hope itself would be alive again. We had hoped that love and grace would become the marks of our culture, of our society. We had hoped. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. That word redeem is packed with a lot of theological nuance. It essentially says we had hoped that he would, he would return dignity to our culture, that people would be treated with respect, that people would recognize that your income or your social status or your place in life has nothing to do with your value and your worth. We had hoped that that kind of dignity would come back. We had hoped that he would bring change, systemic change, the kind of change to make sure that every person has enough food on their table to survive, not just to survive but to thrive. We had hoped that everyone would have a roof over their head. We had hoped that the culture of violence would finally be pushed away and pushed aside. We had hoped that he was the one. And now he's gone. David Lowe is a very good biblical scholar. He says there's nothing more tragic when faith is proven false 
there's nothing more difficult when the future is a dead end. But in this story, we get a glimpse of Jesus and what it means to be a wide-eyed friend. Note what he doesn't do. He doesn't jump in too quickly into their story. He doesn't move too quickly into telling them, hey, it's okay, it's me, everything's going to be fine. He allows them to name their grief, their sorrow, their sadness, maybe even their anger and their cynicism. There's an interesting phrase at the beginning of the story. They stood still, Luke says, looking sad. The word for sad in Greek is skuthropos. I really like saying that word, skuthropos. It means more than sad. It could mean a gloomy outlook. It might mean a cynical, sarcastic kind of anger. Have you been there before? When something didn't work out the way you wanted it to? When your hopes and your dreams and your, your, your desire for the future was suddenly just washed away, taken away, pushed off? And what is left? That cynical kind of angry lack of hope. Just can't believe I let myself think that this might happen. Skutropos. Jesus lets them be in that moment. This is a valuable lesson for us as friends to not rush in too quickly with simple answers or cliched ideas. I mean, after all, we're resurrection people. We celebrate Easter technically, if you want to be technical about it, we celebrate Easter not just on every Easter, on Easter Sunday, but on every Sunday throughout the year. We're Easter people. Our Bible is full of resurrection stories. We might be tempted to say, do you remember what happened in Genesis 1? God came and reached into the primordial void, the, the thing that theologians name is chaos, reached into that and created something new. And that you, that beautiful new creation includes you. It's a resurrection story from nothing to life. What about the Exodus story? One book later in the, in the Old Testament, the story of the Hebrew slaves who are being put down constantly, literally putting put their faces pushed into the mud by the tyrannical, horrible Pharaoh who's using their, their blood, sweat, and tears to help him and the 1% get more and more and more. And then they hear the voice of God through, through the mouth of, of Moses, let my people go. And they're set free from, from slavery to freedom. It's a resurrection story. Skip all the way to the end of the Bible and you get John writing the book of Revelation, chapter 21. There will be no more death. Mourning, weeping, crying, no more. All things will be made new. We might be tempted to rush in with all of that, but what Jesus models here is a friend who sits with a friend in their pain, in their sorrow, their scathropos. A, a friend of mine call, called me recently, about a year ago actually. He lives in another state, a member of another church. But he called up and said, I, I just want you to know, I'm very disappointed in my church. Do you hear that word? Disappointed. Not angry, not frustrated. Disappointed. I said, tell me what's going on. And you've heard this story before. Words were spoken. Emotions were experienced. It feels like there's no reconciliation. I, I just had to leave. I was so disappointed in my church. Take out church, if that's not your story, and insert family. Or school. Or work. Or friends. My friend called me recently, though. And he let me know that he's found a new church. 
And I said, really, you told me you were done with church. You were never going to go again. Why, why, did you, why did you start going back? He said, because I need hope. I need a word of hope. If I hear just one little bit of hope, it's enough to get me through. It's enough to pu push me forward. Tom Long, the, the great teacher of preachers, tells a story about one of his students who was called as a, a student chaplain at a senior adult care facility. Tom says that one of the great things about persons of a certain great age is that they can say and do whatever they want and not worry about the consequences. Well, this, this young student chaplain was called to deliver the sermon at their regular worship service, which was held in a large lobby at their care facility. And so they would set up dozens and dozens of chairs, and they would be crowded every week with a large crowd of folks who would come, some of them on oxygen, some of them in wheelchairs, but they'd come in for the hymns and the singing and the sermon. Well, she's, she's this student chaplain is about a paragraph into her sermon when a woman on the front row grabs the, the joystick of her electric wheelchair and whips it around and heads out down the center aisle and down the hallway, and they hear her calling out as she does, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? I think I just heard Deb say, blah, 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 over here. It's kind of funny. And it's kind of sad. Imagine the disappointments in her life. The losses. The grief that she must surely bear in her heart. And yet... I'd be willing to go to Vegas and put $100 down on her coming back the next week. Hoping against hope to hear something, anything that points for hope in tomorrow. In the story that we, we heard er earlier, Cleopas notes that after Jesus has, has left them. Cleopas notes, didn't our hearts burn when he was teaching? I mean, it was amazing to hear him teaching, wasn't it? I'm not so sure it's the teaching that was so amazing, honestly. Now, I'm, I'm kind of playing with the text a little bit here, and I'm reading between the lines, and I'm drawing some conclusions that maybe you've not heard before on this story, but I'm wondering if it's really the teaching that caused their hearts to burn, or was it the moment with their friend when they finally saw who he was, when he took the bread, broke, blessed it, and offered it to them. They could finally see in this act of hospitality, in this act of grace, in this act of welcome, of service. They saw their friend, their eyes were open. I think what happened in that moment when they realized this great friend was with them again, their past and their future was transformed. Their hearts burned back on the road because of the presence of him in their lives in that moment. And their hope for tomorrow became something new again. I know. And you know, being a great friend is not always easy. But if you want to be, if you want to be a friend of God, then be the friend that someone in your life needs you to be. And you'll find that God is right there with you. Amen.